ParkPal is a companion iPhone app for trips to Disneyland Paris. You can check live attraction wait times, find out schedules for shows, character meet and greets, and parades. You can see restaurant opening hours, menus, and prices, and you can scan in your fast passes and set reminder alerts. ParkPal is available for free from the App Store. Hello, welcome to Shoot First, Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. My guest this time is David O'Reilly. Working as a location scout in the film industry has seen David find locations for major productions such as Inception, World War Z, and a tiny, almost unheard of indie film called Star Wars Rogue One. David has now graduated to writer-director with the completion of his short film Kubrick by Candlelight, a romantic comedy that takes place behind the scenes of Kubrick's 1975 masterpiece Barry Lyndon. If you want to see the awesome photos I just shot of David, um, head to www.sftl.photos and while you're at it, open up the app and hit subscribe so you never miss a bloody episode. We've done the shooting, now let's do the talking. Hello, David. Hello, Robert. Hello, hello. Um, so, Location Scout, it sounds obvious, but, I mean, what do you do? Well, you interpret a brief, basically. Um, so, you'll meet the designer and the director early on. You're probably almost the second or third person on the show. Um, and sometimes there's a script, more than likely at the moment. Um, there isn't. Um, but there'll be concepts and ideas of places and feelings and emotions. And then I turn them into places that um, you can actually shoot, really. So sometimes it's as easy as we need a grand room for a Barry Lyndon-esque style scene. Or more recently, it gets more general. It's, you know, what would be cool is the new, uh, is the new brief. <laughs> so in a weird way you that kind of gives you a little bit of creative power to kind of steer the film in a certain direction yeah so i i would i mean i i could say that to myself all the time but that i suppose that's the only creative part of lo- of the location department is sort of interpreting and guiding that moment um and especially with star wars films and things like that it's it's more planet based so you can kind of you know get the atlas out and say that looks interesting in Ethiopia or that looks interesting in Africa or the Maldives and and you can you know push it in your direction I suppose from my point of view you kind of think of it and you have to as as if you're the director or at least the production designer and kind of get inside their head and interpret the scene or the world or the or, or how the... much how much contact do you actually have with the director um it depends it depends what kind of film it is uh, Ultimately, your boss is the production designer um, who will have a close relationship, you hope, by that stage with the director. Mm -hmm. It depends what kind of film it is. It depends what kind of director it is. Some directors are incredibly involved in your choices. Um, Michael Mann, for instance, is very into it um, and 
you know just comes to you direct almost at some stage i think um, that, i think that shows in his films yeah and exactly. which film did you work on him with uh, i did a film called black hat which okay. um was his last not his last last film but his last film that he directed um amazing experience it, it didn't turn out a hit for okay him. But as you say, I mean, his films are location-based mm. and all of his locations almost kind of mean something to the scene and the characters. So. Yeah. I mean, when whenever anyone says Michael Mann to me, I mean, a lot of people will think of other films. I always think of Manhunter. Absolutely. 100%. That yeah. is a beautiful film. It is shot beautifully. It is acted beautifully. It's my favourite Lecter film. And we're going to come on to Lecter in a moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um how do you get into location scouting? Because it's well, you know most people will go, I want to be a director or I want to, uh, I want to write. Most people don't say, I want to drive around in a jeep for six months looking at fields in Cambodia. Well, I think I I would say most people actually probably do start with I want to write and then I direct and then gradually get worn down into a position where they end up working. <laughs> but um, so I probably did, but I did an English degree, which um, at Leeds University, mm-hmm. um, which. I think someone recently said prepares you for everything and prepares you for nothing. So, um, but that's like any university course, yeah, pretty much, yeah, any <laughs> humanities course. Um, so, um, and so I did that, and and it seems kind of like a story. But on the very last day, because English degrees are three hours a week and uh, one lecture and that kind of thing, I'd finished my exams way before anyone else in my house, and I was just loafing around Leeds and went to the library, saw a magazine called the London Magazine. I'm not sure if it still exists. And they had an article about the London Film Commission, which now is called Film London, and they were looking for interns. And I just um, uh, sent them an email. I mean, would it have been emails then? Yeah. <laughs> I'm very old all of a sudden. What yeah, year was it, this? Uh, 1997. Yeah, because oh, it was an email. Because you've got a typewriter in front of you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I sent them a, <laughs> I sent them a telegram. And, uh, but, um, and yeah, and I worked there in their location library in Portobello Road for, for free. For quite a while um and well, then became permanent member of staff and i'll be talking weeks months i think it was months to be honest and that's and bizarrely i was thinking about it only yesterday that's what's changed i can only suppose talk about the film industry but i think it's what's changed now is that it's so busy now people don't really even do that bit anymore the intern and oh uh, really yeah i i've I, I just noticed people are kind of getting into it and then literally either getting very good jobs or getting very good money Without the whole tea, tea and photocopying thing that is kind of a standard of the film industry, but is that not is that not better? Um, uh, I it depends. I, I it's better. People are earning, which is obviously yeah the better thing. But I think there's something about the film industry that, and maybe it's just an old fashioned point of view that you kind of do your time. Mm. But maybe it's rubbish. Maybe that's. Maybe it's getting the job and get paid properly like everyone else. But yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm only jealous. <laughs> <laughs> you had to work for exactly. five years for free. Exactly. <laughs> you did your time at, at what was it called? Film London. Yeah, then. it was a film London Film Commission then, and then I worked in their location library, which was paper based. You know, then mm. it was uh, they were it was. I mean, it sounds like I'm talking about hundred years ago but it was books full of mag- of papers and and cut out pictures and of all of the locations in london which i would sort of pour over and kind of and then visiting location managers and production designers would come in to have a look and look for stuff so i'd meet them so at some stage i kind of thought well maybe i should do that and i did and then i left and then i suppose 
the glamorous story would be my very first job on leaving was Tomb Raider in their location department. But actually, in between that, I worked in Thomas Pink uh, Shirt Factory. Um, <laughs> uh, Bit of a difference. Packing boxes and, and uh, <laughs> looking at English collars and Oxford. Uh, what did you collar. do on um, on Tomb Raider? So uh, Tomb Raider, I, the, the location manager was a guy called Robin Higgs, who I'd met in the film commission. Mm. And I'm not sure if I approached him or he approached me. I can't really remember now. But he said, I have a huge amount of pictures that I haven't stuck down and put together. And and then, of course, and I, as you know, as a photographer, then we were, we were doing lots of big pans. And, of course, then it was print them all and stick them all together. Yeah. Now, obviously, you put them into an app and you get a great, beautiful picture. Oh, they were panos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's that's kind of the stock and trade of, of some location departments is is the big wide yeah not and not very technically accurate you know just to kind of almost uh, almost now to give the 360 which now you can give them obviously mm-hmm. but um so i had a sort of backlog of those that i worked on oh i see so so they would go to a location photograph it in either individual photos and stitch them together as a pano put them stick them up in the room so the director and the production designer can walk in and go Oh, it's almost like exactly. an immersive thing for exactly, them. Exactly, yeah. And you just you, you you there's two things that happen with the with your pano, which is you get the nice picture, but also then you get the the reality ugliness of it. So yeah. you see slightly wider than your lens will ever go, and it's okay. Well, there's the beautiful field, but we've gone wider, and I've shown you the motorways there. So you're kind of there's a bit of both, and eventually, it, it depends what the designer and the director is like. You either give them what the shot is or you give them the reality and let them kind of zoom, how do you zoom judge in. that um i think you just find out um uh, and you, uh, you'll if you've worked with them before you'll have figured it out by the second time or the third time uh, and i think you'll just figure it out in the first couple of weeks how kind of what they want some people some designers hate pans they just can't stand seeing but partly because they get distorted and they hate seeing distorted mm-hmm. images and then some people are quite happy about seeing everything yeah. wide and just because uh, it's their job to interpret that mm-hmm. shot. And you don't want to push them in a direction too quickly. Yeah. Let them discover it, even though you're the one who's discovered it. Um, <laughs> Almost trick them into discovering someone, it themselves. Someone like Michael Mann, to come back, because he is so location based in his head as well, is when I worked with him on Black Hat, I was in Hong Kong and I, for six weeks, looking for one location, an interior room. And so I would go off, take pictures of interior rooms for a safe house location and send it to him in any way. You know, and he was, I think he was in the States or he was over in in Jakarta, somewhere. He was somewhere, he wasn't there. So I'd send it to him in a PDF, very rough and ready. And then he would come back and say, what's the context? And I kept thinking, what's he on about? So I spoke to him and he said he wanted to see the stairs, the outside, where it was, even though we would never see that. And it was kind of fascinating and strange that and then i got it that he he still wants to know where that place is Mm. which means i suspect in some ways he'll never and probably really has ever made a studio film because he wants something real in that room is that because he's conscious that the actors don't just appear on set on the location they have to walk from you know the the Uh, and What's all, it, the caravan and, through yeah, that and stair, all of up that the helps. Yeah, uh, uh, from his point of view. I mean, I'm sure there's some actors whose point of view is, yeah, where, let me get in the room and I'll do the <laughs> yeah. business. You know what I mean? And I'll look out the window and, and it's a green screen and and I'm acting. 
he and but he regards that as important where it is the noises the the lights coming through the window you know and if you're filming in hong kong you can't avoid noise or light so yeah. you kind of wanted to you're, you're going to feel the context if you're in the room anyway it's quite method in, in it in is that yeah it was quite it was like a it was method directing and method location scanning and i remember i was with the uh, art director in malaysia which was the main place i was sent to and he wanted the villain's house mm. and most people would go uh, designer or production uh, or director yeah it's the villain you know you'd either go he's a bond villain he has a big house or he has a penthouse and and then that's kind of it and he gave us an incredible amount of detail about this guy and who he was what he would have on his walls and what kind of life he led and, we, and i remember sitting with damien who was the art director going and for him obviously he'd have to interpret that artistically on set and for me to find it it was incredible he had the whole story for us and it and it meant something where he lived it wasn't just put him in front of a big window well to me as a as a photographer who my big thing is I, I constantly in my images i want to see who the person is i don't just want it to be a photo there needs to be things in frame that suggest a narrative or a vibe or character so for me that that makes perfect sense that's what filmmaking is mm -hmm. that if you have a character you wouldn't expect to see a bond villain in a semi-detached house they have a particular vibe to them so they need to have a you know a lay a lair that looks a particular way or if they're living in the real world james bond has a particular house he doesn't live you know in a cottage he lives in whatever yeah. we saw he had in in skyfall or whatever yeah. it was and it's, it's the environment i mean it's it's a it's in our own lives, isn't it? Our environments inform mm. us, as you can tell now in this incredibly <laughs> in your, messy office. Your Kubrick and film-laden <laughs> office. Um, so from Tomb Raider, you went to which film? Uh, you know, I can't remember then. Um, I probably went into sort of... I did a couple of small ones with the same team. So I suppose yeah. that's the key about any industry, but the film industry and TV is exactly the same, is it's getting in on, on the firm... And if you're good, then you go with them. And then yeah. that's kind of it until they stop, basically. So I think I did a couple of other things in between. And then that team merged into the Harry Potter team. So I did a bit on number two. And then I scouted on number three and looked after a location in Borough Market, which became the Leaky Cauldron entrance. Okay. Um, oh, I, I've maybe... Oh, I should never really ever admit this out loud. I think I've only seen the first three. <laughs> well, I'll let you into a secret. <laughs> That's all I did. As well. So, so you only I, watched the ones you're on. I very selfishly thought, you know, I'll, I'll leave it. Um, my other half has seen all of them, and, and maybe I've seen bits of the others, but yeah, I kind of thought once I'd um, done with it, I was done with it. Yeah. Um, and they got incredibly long, and. Um, well, the books yeah. got long as well, didn't they? Yeah. I, I, and I, yeah, and I, I think I only got to number three, which was actually a relatively slim volume yeah. and then they turned into kind of biblical length and i thought you know what i might as well read another book of that size that has something to say <laughs> thanks jk for the work there. <laughs> um you've kind of been placed on on very big films so you must be good at what you do for them to trust you yeah i i I've, hopefully um I, I as i say i think i was I obviously worked hard at the beginning mm. and then it's all gone downhill. From there. <laughs> but I suppose I got in with the right people who, who I was very lucky that worked on big films. I suppose if you'd asked me, is that what you'd wanted to do? Yeah, of course, because they have more money and they have more fun and they'll have 
you know you can buy yourself out of problems but you're also going to be much more adventurous about where you go and then luckily then those films turn into international films and um and then if you're lucky to go and scout internationally so it kind of i was yeah i suppose I, and it's different here I've, I've recently went to la for the very glamorous location managers guild international awards where we were nominated for rogue one i went there and they invited me and it was great and we had you know it was a few days of meetings and parties and all that kind of thing that they actually appreciate the department over there massively here they less so now you kind of uh, i work with people that used to be in the opening credits of bond films you know they'd say location manager yeah that's long gone now you probably have to wait 20 well, minutes before you see it why is there that uh difference between think, here and there uh i i think i think it's there's it's union based um so they have they have a right to be listened to or recognized i think it's just different and also location scout over there is much more like you can do that for life and you're appreciated for it mm. here in the uk if you're doing it for more than five years you're there everyone's slightly suspicious of you because you you should then have become a location manager and you should be organizing it all rather than actually going out and finding it because a lot of location managers don't like scouting. Yeah. They 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 don't like that bit. They like the bit afterwards which is organizing it, find out where 250 people are going to go to the toilet and contracts and closing a road which me I find the boring part of the job because that's the admin part. It's the admin part. It's yeah. the contract the contract part and you know dealing with irate tenants and mm. you know all that kind of stuff but some people that's that's what they like so in the states they were giving out awards to location scouts that had worked for 40 or 50 years and and they are the go-to people if you're going to shoot in la they're like well there's only one guy i can talk to he's, he knows everywhere and, <laughs> yeah. he's, and he's been doing it he's got the life. encyclopedic no yeah and knowledge he, up here. here um it's very much like well, you're still doing it <laughs> so it's not very british though i think it's very british there's a sort of I don't know what it is. It's not the tall. It's the opposite of the tall poppy syndrome. It's it's like, you know, there's a little frown in it. If you could see my frown, you'd, you'd know exactly. <laughs> yeah, you frowns can, don't work it, on the podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> but it's, you can see it. It's that kind of really. <laughs> you don't want to move up, but actually, you can just be better in your field and or be bit or be the best. You know, yeah. just keep going at it. And um, so I, I obviously do the other bit um, occasionally. Um, which bit do you prefer um, uh, the scouting is yeah. brilliant you you know you hang around with uh, the most amazing designers and directors and producers and you talk hypothetically and you know and it's it's great fun and it is it is purely creative you yeah. go out you kind of interpret where the camera is going to be when when they turn up and you're you, either you're right or you're wrong but it's your interpretation of, yeah. of the scene I suppose that bleeds into then me wanting to become a director and mm. doing my own little short was that you kind of there's only so many times you can tell someone where the camera is and have them not listen and have them not listen or a producer do something the opposite way to how you think it should be mm. the only way you can prove it is by doing it yourself i suppose talk to me about inception it was like a bond film it just went all over the world yeah i mean obviously there's a lot of u.s stuff in it so we mm. were kind of i'd say it was hard all the studio work was here um so all of the revolving hotel rooms yeah. and all of that was up in cardington um which is the old these massive hangars that used to be airship hangars um 
and then and then it was a bizarre mix in the UK. We had all the airports, so you would have had Tokyo Airport, and we had. Um, but using UK locations and, for that, yeah, yeah, and so the the very American stuff where you see the train going through the streets, and and obviously then Alberta where they shot the snow snow climax was Alberta, but then all of the kind of other stuff, so. Even things as strange as the Mombasa drug den, where they go down in the basement and they're all mm. hooked up. That's in St John Street in uh, in London. Oh, wow! <laughs> um, and there's a few other bits like that. And then and then the bit I found and looked after. I mean, I, I, I suppose I found all of the UK stuff, but the the bit I ended up looking after was a place in Chertsey, not far from where we're sitting now. And it was an old. Uh, get, it was EA Games's HQ for a while, and I'd always had my eye on it. Um, bizarrely, it was a rich a Norman Foster building, and it became empty. They moved out, and then I uh, we were looking for a very cool place for J- Joseph Gordon-Levitt to show Ellen Page how to create stuff. So he's kind of introducing her to the oh, the, when they're in uh, like a deserted. It almost looks like. Um, like a warehouse yeah. where they where they actually they, go to sleep and, and try yeah, they it all start, out. They, so we, they start that and they go in, and so that's an that's a, a very well used warehouse in LA, where, okay. they, where their base is. And then they go in, and he's kind of illustrating how things work. So they he work he goes along this kind of Penrose steps, they call it the yeah. steps, the ones that never. Um, and that and and so I looked after that location, so we removed bits of building and put and that was a physical set they actually put those stairs in that physically existed and the only thing that was green would have been the scaffold just holding up the very last bit yeah and it could only be obviously looked at from one angle where it hooked up yeah it was a it was a genuine optical illusion set built so it was an incredible set what's it like working with christopher nolan good i mean he um i'm sure we'll come on to it later but he's he he gets compared to Kubrick a lot mm-hmm. and I think in in many ways he is in terms of output but also I think in that kind of very clear focus of what he wants basically he he's definitely involved with locations and sense he, he knows exactly what he wants and sometimes he'll just say let's go and shoot there in the sense uh, and certainly the Mombasa location was somewhere that he had used for Batman Begins The Dark Knight and then The Dark Knight Rises afterwards so he he quite liked uh, he likes going back to the same place and and interpreting it in a different way which is very rare for designers or directors to want to go back but he's um yeah he's he's i would say he's tough but he knows exactly what he wants and is he open to hearing your opinions and your uh, points uh, of view uh, uh, on inception definitely because it was a it was his own project it was mm. it was more I wouldn't say it was freeform, but it was like you—you know—you could certainly all and all of those dreamscapes were very clearly defined in people's heads, but actually visually. And and the designer who I worked with a few times since, Guy Dyers, you know, had incredible concepts of each level. Um, but in, architecturally, then it was kind of open because it was all about architecture to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could put in weird and wonderful futuristic looking buildings or classically designed but you know or art deco and it would all go into the mix because because it was kind of open it was an open world to kind of create worlds then you go on to something like dark knight rises where it's a bit more i suppose i mean it's obviously much more corporate but it's but it's a it's a pre-designed 
aesthetic to be honest yeah so you you can it's funny when i'm from the the one before yeah so you have to you know that's that's your reference is the other films so um and yeah so i I did those too and they were great great fun and and you know he's a serious proper director you know there's there's no messing around it's (laughs) like he he knows what he wants and he'll get it he's christopher nolan of course he's gonna get it um so how did you come to switch to a galaxy far far away um i i'd just been working on miss peregrine's home for peculiar children which was the last tim burton film okay um and i i'd spent ages on that finding the house he must be he must be fun to work with yeah i mean he's i i first did charlie and the chocolate factory with him back in the day back in the day over 10 years well more than 10 years ago um and yeah, and I Matt, a huge fan. I'm, I suppose the weird thing is, I'm a huge fan of almost everyone I work with, which is great to yeah. meet them. Sometimes, sometimes you realise you're wrong about them, but and I won't tell you. But um, <laughs> I was about to say we'll come back to that, but exactly. we can't. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got to work. Um, um, so yeah, and I was a huge fan. Of, I mean, who isn't a fan of Timber? And um, and so yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a great thing to start on mm-hmm. um, because it was kind of weird and wonderful sets obviously which were amazing but yeah he's quite precise about what he wanted as well but um so i yeah so i was invited to do miss peregrine and then and they were struggling to find the house and and spent months traveling around the uk trying to find the home which was a kind of character basically in the film i would say it's like you know number three in the cast if you're going to put it that way it ended up finding it in antwerp in the outskirts of antwerp bizarrely because um, we we it was in in the book it's in a Welsh island. He didn't want anything too English, but it had to feel English. You know, it had to feel like it was on here. And but so he didn't want uh, a house that was like a reject from Harry Potter. Yeah, well, uh, saying that that's kind of what I felt like we ended up with. But oh. it, it, <laughs> I suppose bizarrely, and and I think I remember actually saying this to him in his own house um, when we were looking at pictures. Is he actually wanted? a Burton-esque house. <laughs> and he's, he just couldn't, he, he just he couldn't is, vocalize he it. He is his own reference. Yeah. You know, he was... What is he, what is he looking for, Tim? Basically, he's looking for a Tim Burton house. So uh, the writer of the book could use the house in in Belgium as a reference for mm. the for his book. And then, so I went to Belgium and hooked up with a good friend of mine who'd, who li- who's from there, and we went driving around, and they had this amazing website in Belgium which lists every single house of any kind of almost any age like if it's more than 15 years old it's it's documented photographed so you just go on it and say burton-esque no, it would have, i think i might put something else in. but it, it makes uh, your life a lot easier. and it was amazing and it would come up and so we just, just go through them and i we drove around this corner one day and turned and got in, went into the garden and saw this house called torrenhoff and we we're just like well that's that's it so who was with you and that I, day? So it was just Annabelle then, who was just the the local scout and and friend of mine, and and it, it was obvious. You just kind of go, wow, that's silly. And of course, typical films carried on scouting for another month. Exactly what I did on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We chose. I went and did eighty seven factories for a scene, <sighs> and we chose number twelve or something like that. Because there's always there's always a feeling like just in case it's in, not. You know, you need to back up. Even taking a photograph is like, should we go on? Because you never know the. The next one might be the one, yeah. You know, and that's kind of like doing takes, and and so, and it's definitely the same way as we we did the house, brought the house back, and he and he actually turned to me and said, 
you must have known this was the one. And I said, yeah, look at it. It's the, and I took, there was one picture and it, you, it was, the, they put it on the post. You know, the, the, the same shot was on the, not my picture, but oh. the same <laughs> shot was on the post. I hope not. Anyway. Um, but you know what I mean? It was like, you could see, you could see the story straight away. And it was, yeah. There. And it, so it actually was vague, vaguely Harry Potterish. But, um, so from that point, would Tim then go down himself to look at it in person or yeah. does he just rely on pictures until she yeah day? so then we we got on the Eurostar a few weeks later and and went and visited it and then you kind of just let them walk around really and sort of soak it up and see whether it kind of fits the bill so he um, becomes he becomes tim burson as we know him exactly he and you and, and there's also and it, different people operate differently but there's certain people you just let go and open the door and let them walk around yeah some people like to be guided and meet everyone and be told bits and pieces about the house or the history or some people go like an estate agent kind of you kind of are to a certain extent you're selling <laughs> you're selling hopes and dreams and uh, um, it's a real doer-upper and it was and so that was the bizarre story about that one um that it was uh, up for auction and of course it was just that terrible moment where you go we found the house it's taken six months this is the house and they're like oh yeah no we're selling it i was like oh, okay i was like, this will be easy because you know it'll just be one person selling it. no no it's uh six brothers and sisters and you're just like right i'll get i'll get my coat and i'll leave <laughs> <laughs> um so at one stage the production company it was fox uh generally but i can't remember there was obviously a smaller production company tim burton's production company running it um they were going to buy it they literally that just bought the house. They they were they were going to buy it, and they How went much to was all. It? The, uh, I, can't, I, I think it was six or seven hundred thousand pounds. And, oh, and, I thought you were going to say million. No, I mean that's and, quite cheap. And, and for the house that for you would have got house. is pretty amazing. Yeah, although I mean, in London, twelve million. Definitely, a, yeah. It was it's a it was a twelve million pound house in London. We ended up not buying it. Um, and I sp- funny enough, I suppose that it, they were probably right because I think somewhere down the line they thought there was a series out of this. I'm not sure now whether they're going to do another oh they were going to franchise it. yeah so so anyway they went to the auction annabelle went to the auction and waited to see who bought it bizarrely it's as bizarre as that and then went up to that person and said congratulations you've just bought this doer upper and um, by the way would you like us to take it over for three months (laughs) and and his initial response was absolutely no Oh really? Yeah, he just didn't. I think, and I can't remember. I think he was a he was a builder. I think, and he was like, "Well, I'm I'm going to buy this, but I want to buy it as the family home." Which was, you could tell he probably was a Tim Burton fan just to buy that as a family home. Because uh, when uh, she approached him, did he know that it was Tim? I I, I can't remember. I think she, I think she had. I think it was just it, they were so desperate. I think to to secure it. I think mm. they just said it is, and I think and that changed things because his kids then said, "Oh my god." Yeah, we got to we got to do this, and then we so have I think to live it's, in Tim it's that kind house. of luck as well because I think they'd read the book, and and then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden he's letting down his kids. So we played that <laughs> angle. Um, Dad, emotional um, blackmail exactly. still exists. Exactly. So um, it kind of shut down for a while then, and while they kind of figured that out, and then it, and then it started up. And in the interim, I got a call saying, "Would you like to come in and start working on Rogue One?" And I was like. See you, Tim. <laughs> but, but it wasn't as brutal as that. There was a kind of gap, and I was like, it wasn't working. I thought, well, this film may it might not come back, or you know, because I've done I've actually done the film with Tim Burton that I've worked on for a long time, and, and it never happened. So which one was that? Well, it, it, I mean, it never it didn't never happened at all. It was called oh. Ripley's Believe It or Not. So it was, oh, it was named after the yeah. So it was the, the awful place the on Piccadilly. <laughs> it was about how that place in Piccadilly came came to existence, but it was like a Indiana Jones style romp. 
about the real Robert Ripley. And yeah, he, and and it would have been, it was a very funny script, and it would have been very good. But I think it just sort of was it just, just too much? Yeah, and, I, and it was Jim. Uh, I, I'm sure this is public knowledge. It was Jim Carrey who was going to play him. Oh wow! Um, so it was about ten years ago. So it was the height of his yeah. his fame. Um, but no, it would have been really fun. It would have been I'd say Indiana Jones meets Tim Burton. So you mean you'd buy the ticket already, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, um, but it, yeah, it sort of sort of fell apart, which as so often they do, mm. um, they kind of for various reasons, money, not not necessarily money, because I assume it's easy to get money for a Tim Burton, a Tim Burton Jim, Carrey, Jim Carrey movie, yeah. But um, it's not going to lose money. Something happened with that, so yeah, so uh, so I was sort of a bit twice shy. I was like, eh, what did I hang around to go again? I suppose I'd found the locations for it. You know, the house was the thing, so I was kind of done. And then yeah, Rogue One. Or Los Alamos, as it was called then, which is the the code word for it. Like Blue Harvest. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then yeah, went off and um, sp- spent months, literally in in Pinewood, just compiling pictures because it was because it was very early on. Yeah. So it was. It was so how how early before? Like how how long before actual the, production? The Star ones are quite. Star Wars ones are quite long, uh, and quite shockingly long for other people in the film industry. Um, what are we I, talking like? A year, two years? Yeah, a year. I think I've, uh, I of start, just compiling. Yeah, or, or not or, sort or, of or locations. Starting. Yeah, I mean, uh, the year would include then getting getting out there and then people and then bringing designers and then bringing yeah. directors. But it's definitely. I, I think it was September of whatever year it was, two thousand fourteen. Oh and wow! We did. That is quite long because it didn't come out. Yeah, I don't think it would have been two and a half years later that the film actually came out. So my last day on on Rogue One was December 2015. When Force Awakens came out. Yeah, so it was almost that week is the the day we finished filming Rogue One. Wow. What was it like working with uh, Gareth Edwards? Great. He's like a film fan. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I know everyone who makes films are, but he was very much, you could see, making a Star Wars film was almost his life's work yeah at at an early age you know so hopefully he's got something else to do after it but yeah and he was he was very precise but very very open to i suppose what happens when you're you've only done a couple of films and then all of a sudden you're doing star wars is and and also then despite me coming in you're with a team that's already done force awakens Mm. and so there's kind of begun to be a family environment which means there's a shortcut about working and you know everyone knows the expectations yeah. and then i suppose having a new director come in and trying to deal with that i suppose you have to release a fair amount of um control in the sense you do or thing, he does i think that he does you yeah. know you have you have to kind of i suppose rightfully so res- respect that everyone else makes star wars films yeah and now you're in charge if that makes sense it's not just a director's uh, show. It, it's more of a, a, a <clears throat> it's more of a film by committee. Is that what you're uh, saying? Yeah, I suppose it is. But the but the committee extends from producer level to like, let's say me or you know my location manager because we because we we've done a couple already and there's a way of working and there's a kind of obviously a very clear look. You know, it's not massively open to interpretation in some ways because if you're doing Rogue One, it's pre episode four so you it's not going to be crazy because you've got to get to a point in at the end of rogue one that says we're going into episode four new hope so but no i think it's and i've I've read about chris nolan saying much the same when he did batman begins it was he had done incredible films 
but they were they weren't part of a huge franchise yeah that goes back through different films and different directors and different producers and he felt like he had to he hadn't made a special effects film or a visual effects film so he kind of had to entrust a lot of control into the various head of the departments and kind of go tell me how do i do this then very quickly became kubrickian and said right now i know i now i've taken that information from you i'm gonna gonna tell you i think that shows there's there is a vast difference between batman begins and the dark knight it's almost as if they are from completely different batman trilogies definitely talk to me about the locations used in rogue one rogue one was fantastic for me (laughs) there's no doubt (laughs) from my very first day i went in and they had no space for me, so they put me in this small cubbyhole office. And I said, okay. And This is up at Pinewood. At Pinewood. And I was like, okay. And they said, oh, yeah, this was... Um, I said, oh, there's lots of hairs on the chair. And I was like, okay. And they said, oh, yeah, no, that's where we changed Chewbacca on Force <laughs> Awakens. And I was like, it's fine. This is amazing. Like, there's Chewie's, Chewie's pubes on my chair. You know, <laughs> and they have it cleaned. <laughs> exactly. Come on. But no, it was amazing. And then outside the door was like R2-D2, and it was incredible. And yeah. so, like, I'm... Every, not everyone, but a lot of people, it's uh, it's a big part of their life. So yeah. to kind of be, so so working on Rogue One at the beginning, they were still shooting Force Awakens, so that was all kind of around, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, obviously to be part of that and then start that process. But it was amazing for me because these films are organic at the beginning. I they they often have a script. Um, but it's loose, and it's more about finding their way through that prep period, if that makes sense. So what what it meant for me was is I got sent all around the world to places that we never shot. <laughs> um, so that's what I meant. Um, so yeah, so so thing. So a good example is very early on there was a jungle planet in Rogue One. Oh really? Um, and it would have been where Saw Gerrera lived, um, Forrest Whitaker's character. So, and he ended up obviously in that sort of in a cave in Jordan or, yeah. or Jeddah, as the, uh, the planet was called. But uh, originally, he it was a jungle planet. So I spent a month in Mexico, uh, <laughs> a month in Vietnam, um, then I went over to Thailand. And Thailand got very hot in the sense we were thinking about shooting there, and we were kind of getting set up and thinking about it. Oh, not weather hot. Like hot as in, oh, this no, is a great place. No, it was definitely hot oh, as both. well, but both. <laughs> and so it was, but yeah, it was beginning to be the place we we would shoot the mm. jungle and potentially part of um, uh, Scarif as well, the last place, which was the tropical island. Yes. So we were kind of finding doubles for all of that, um, and then very quickly, uh, almost overnight, that got taken out. The jungle. They said, "No, we're not going to turn it. It's going to be more deserty." Who made that decision? Uh, I mean, uh, up upstairs so way up okay yeah the at, at the top is and that is that is that a, a creative thing or they just know you know we want a certain look desert ties into the first film is it is that I, kind I, of decision I making i think that on? was the rationale behind it i yeah. think um th- there's often things you never know why mm-hmm. the decisions were made it's like any way. job really isn't yeah, it yeah and and so and so we were i remember one day we were in thailand uh, waiting to I think they were going to come over and scout it, and it was going to be a big, big deal to scout. And then, uh, and then the next day we weren't. And I think by the, by the day after we were on the way back. What, where were the places that it was eventually shot? So eventually, then, so that that certainly became Jordan. 
So they shot a very very small amount in Jordan, um, which is like walking and talking and heading mm. towards the town, um, which was set in Pinewood. We shot in Iceland um, for the opening scene with um, the young Jin yeah. and, her, and Mads Mikkelsen and their house. And then the last third of the film is in, in uh, the Maldives. Not too bad. Now, that was the situation where I thought, you know what, I'll do the scouting and... Yes, if you want me to look after it, I'll <laughs> oh, come along. If you want me to manage it, fine. Exactly. So, I think I'm yes, free. So I, um, yeah, I went to the Maldives to scout it, and obviously that was amazing. And if we'd never gone back there, that was enough. It was just yeah. like, that's great. I'm on a speedboat. I'm jumping in the water to take photographs, and it's great. And then and then it became like a reality. We were like, we're, we're going to bring 300 people and, uh, you know, 20 stormtroopers to the Maldives and shoot not only in the Maldives, but in one of the atolls that really doesn't have anything mm. obviously that's what you do and and we did and it was incredible we'd have like 40 boats out every day and landing craft it was literally almost like d-day in the morning and dunkirk in the afternoon <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that's yeah. i wish i'd thought of that at the time that's quite good <laughs> um but it's not always exotic locations is it no and i suppose actually a good example is rogue one then as as cool as fun as it was to do, then we did a, uh, a one night in Canary Wharf tube station. Tell me about that, because that's oh. got to be. I mean, how do you how do you manage to do something like that and keep it a secret? Bizarrely, we did, considering how many people are obsessed by Star Wars. Mm. And that night, and again, it seems like a story. We how it, it was. I mean, obviously, logistically very complicated, but we you just using like one. Yeah, we, we 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 use the whole platform essentially. Um, and we would we were building on one we were shooting on one section of the upper the big concourse bit, yeah and and it was just shielded by one barrier of Harris fencing with something on it and then and then as the station was closing then we moved all of our stuff down onto the platform and took over the whole platform mm. and then by the time people were coming in the next morning oh so you shot it was a night shoot yeah okay and then by the next morning we were out. And before anyone even noticed, and I, I, I was on set keeping tabs on Twitter to see if anyone was going to go. Oh my God, I can't believe it! And <laughs> only two people said, "I think they might be shooting Star Wars in Canary Wharf Tube Station." And at the time, Secret Cinema was doing their Star Wars thing. In, <laughs> I think is it in Canada Water or somewhere? <laughs> yeah, so, I went. Yeah. So behind, so one side you had, I think it was a good hundred and fifty classic stormtroopers. From your side, from our side, yeah. All these really cool droids, um, obviously Felicity and all of the gang, all dressed up, running around. Um, and then on the other side, it was almost the same. <laughs> and I just, I felt, I, I felt bad for them. I felt like because they didn't know. You were like, no, no, you think you're if, going to something cool? You, look, I was almost going to say, I might just pick one of you. If so only they knew. You. And and then I thought they, then, and that's why we'd get rumbled. Someone would spot it and then go. Oh my god! And then we'd get rushed by yeah. tons of people, and and no one spotted apart from two people on Twitter. Like, what scenes were shot there? Well, that's a, a few of them didn't make it, unfortunately, which okay. was a shame for all the effort we put in. But it's 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 bizarrely it is the Maldives, so they go in the door in the Maldives, and then part of that actually is a is an old airbase in Chesham. It's all glamorous. Um, so they go in a door, then go down the lift, and then they go into. Canary Wharf, and then there's lots of soldiers running. There's probably more of it in the trailer than I think actually there is in the film. But there's little glimpses of people running, and mm. and they're trying to escape. And there's a few droid bits and stuff like that. I think there was more than we shot more than ended up. But then that's often the way of all 
of all, yeah, of all, of all like fi- creative endeavors, or yeah, creative endeavors. But um, but that was yeah, it was it was an achievement for the location department and all of the location managers who did that just to kind of get in and out really without without being spotted, but also just making that work because they're not easy places to film anyway. Yeah, let alone get in. In secret, big bits of props, and yeah. then, so everything had to be built to be carried by two men, and be brought down escalators. And they, we did a, a test run of all of the set pieces the weekend before, and kind of did a rehearsal to get it in and out at the location. <clears throat> yeah, wow, yeah. So and so it was kind of, I, we always say, oh, it was like a military operation, but I suppose the, the military operation would have been in charge of the light brigade or something like yeah. that. Yeah, borderline. Could, at any moment it could be a complete disaster um and somehow it, it worked and it was yeah it was great it was great to do how much can you tell me about the one you're on now well i've i've just finished on something called the untitled han solo project another small independent yeah. film and and that's <laughs> it, prob- all... it probably will never get released no i think <laughs> it'll do okay um and that's all i can tell you but it'll have some very nice locations and um you can't and... tell me where you went I can't really no because I think funny enough it's it, it was it was more precise this time in the sense so most of the places I went to ended up in the film okay. if that makes sense yeah so if there were cast offs I'd tell you but actually we were we were a bit more precise although it's on record that we shot in Puerto Ventura in where sorry in Puerto Ventura in the Canary Islands so because it's <sighs> lovely because there's pictures all over the place in terms of the the progression now as we see with these star wars films are the team almost getting better at being more precise about what they want yeah i mean it's a it's a franchise that has story groups and design groups and you know it's it's that i wouldn't say it's it's all joined up and i think i was reading ryan johnson who did number eight and is editing it now saying that he he turned up to number eight thinking that it would be very planned out and and like you know this is just sit down and direct it and in fact he ended up writing the script for it and mm. plotting it so i think whatever's the best version of it is the best version in the sense you know obviously they're planning years ahead like yeah. marvel and you know they plan 10 years ahead maybe more but i think as and when the film is being made or or in pre-production it's kind of not freeform but it's kind of it it has to be because things change. The script changes for the better all the time, and actors might change, or you know, designers might change. You know, so there's all kinds of moments throughout any of those big films where everything goes on its head, mm. and and that happens on on Star Wars films, and it's happened on Batman films. You know, so it's not. It, it's I don't think it's a franchise thing, but it's 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 the scale of these films is to be honest, most of them always have a uh, a release date before they have. A script that everyone loves yeah and that, so that, and that's that's across the board i don't think anyone denies that um but it, it's kind of nice in, in the sense that because all the dots are not yet joined up it still allows people to be creative yeah absolutely i mean and it has to and that's why i think it does change because you always think i always try to think about the film industry and i suppose it's television as well but it is it's the idea that what kind of industry operates like that where you give 200 million to creative people you know there's bound to be mistakes there's bound to be decision changes overnight that completely upend everything because what other business would go yeah here's nearly half a billion pounds or dollars um now go and make 
something. I mean, if yeah. it was, if you're making clothes pegs, a creative a creative person would fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And then there's your 200 million and then you're sacked and that's it. Yeah. And, and you've destroyed the company and you'll never work in the clothes peg industry again. But then somehow in the film industry, we give massive amounts of money to, you know, producers obviously know exactly what they're doing. But ultimately you're giving it to people that can come in on the Monday morning and say, you know what? I didn't, you know that guy? He's gone. And, or... You know, it was. A, I thought it was a jungle. Now it's the desert, and and they're very easy. They're very easy decisions to make, mm. but obviously have massive repercussions financially, yeah. but also creatively. And I think that's that's what I love about it, and sometimes hate is that it's sort of crazy the amount of money that is given to creative people. So let's talk about how you go from being a location scout to. A short film director you know when did you start to think i've got to i've got to start doing my own stuff oh you're gonna to have to wait till next week to hear david's answer come back next week for part two of david o'reilly's episode of shoot first talk later where he talks about how he made his short film kubrick by candlelight and so you don't miss that episode open up the apple podcast app and click subscribe also rate and review the podcast i love a five-star review until next time i remain robert gershenson We'll shoot you later.